From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 14, Fatal Peril. Joe, tell me about the last bank you ever robbed. Yeah, so it was an Oxnard, and uh, I was a fugitive. Yeah, I'd been robbing banks on the run. And I wanted to make this money. I wanted to make a, some money to leave for to my girlfriend before I left the country. So this is before the arrest? This is before you went this back to jail? This is the day before I get busted at UCLA. The day before. So I go to Oxnard, park my car on the main road in a, like a gas station parking lot. So you can't see me from the front door of the bank at all. Not at all. But there's a big parking lot. It's in kind of in a mall area. And the kind of parking lot that had a lot of little islands in it. Mm. So I walk into the bank. Very simple robbery. I go in there. I rob them. I'm walking out. And as I'm walk, I turn around to walk. Equal distance to the front door. But on the other side, outside, is an armored car carrier like he's carrying cash in a bag and he's walking to it and I can see the armored car parked behind him so I walk to it and I just keep my cool like what the fuck I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play it easy you know like what, I'm not gonna panic I gotta get out of here so I walk to the door and I'm thinking who's gonna open the door who's gonna get there first I mean we're a good distance away it gives me plenty of time to think like how is this gonna play out he gets to the door and he opens it and he holds it for me. And I'm like, oh, hey, thanks. And I walk right through the door. Thank you. Walk away. And he walks in. I don't look behind me, but I know that as soon as he walks in, somebody is going to say, that guy just robbed us. I don't hear it because what I hear is just blood in my ears. Going boom, 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 boom. Because now I look at the guy in the in the armored car and he's looking at me because he has to watch his friends back going in and he's looking at me and I got sunglasses and I'm walking out and I'm walking out with a stride and I think he picks something up but almost as soon as that guy gets inside the door I take a couple steps and then I just start booking man I just start running fast as I can I gotta get in my car and sure enough I hear the truck like rumble up and I'm just running, running, running. And as I'm running, I, you know, periodically I do look back just to see where he is and that's when I realize he can't come straight after me. He has to like drive around this island then get around this other island. Like he's having to find his way out of the maze of the parking lot and I run, I'm, now I'm across the street and now I get to my car and I don't feel like I'm going to make it. Like I know this thing is way closer than anything has ever been to my car. In fact, I start my car, back it up, drive away, and I got a little Mazarik stuff. I take off up the street, and I see it come around the corner, and it's picking up speed. And I'm like, I, this thing is, has enough speed with it that it's actually catching me for a second. And then it pulls away. And I go over the freeway, and I'm driving back to LA now, and I'm driving down the road, and I'm like, good, I got the money. I got away, everything's cool, wouldn't be till later that I realized 
um, I hadn't really got away. Not even close. Part one. First day out. Joe, do you remember your last day in prison? What was your last day in prison like? I woke up, showered, changed, shaved, shit. I did not shine my shoes because I only was going to walk out with um, shower shoes because I gave my shoes to somebody else. Or I would have shined them too. And then I just waited. Well, I went to breakfast and then went to my cell and I waited to be called. And sure enough, at a certain point, pretty early, it's like, loyal, roll it up, roll it up. And so I go and um, they escort me to the administration building and now they start processing me out. Sign this, sign that, sign this, fingerprint that, photo of this. Here's your clothes, change into these, because my family had sent me clothes ahead of time. And then they brought me to the gate. When they brought me to the gate, many asshole guards like, all right, see you soon. <laughs> like, I'm coming back. Hmm. And then Father Mark Cerna from the Portsmouth Abbey, he'd been visiting me for six months. He was a friend of Richard Rodriguez. And we uh, we had been writing to each other, and then he decided to come up and visit me in Massachusetts. And um, he was a good man. He is a good man. And um, he was the abbot of the Portsmouth Abbey, which means he was like the head monk. Lovely man. Picks me up. We get in his car, and I have to go cash my check. And I was given a $150 check. So first thing I do when I walk out of the prison that I spent seven years for for robbing banks, the first thing I do is I go to a bank. And when I go to the bank this time, I'm going to make an entirely different experience. I step out of his car and I look at the bank. And I'm like, I'm, this is momentous, man. This is, I'm a different man than I went in. And I have a different relationship to banking. So I walk up and I put both my hands on the, the door and I open, a, open the doors and walk in. And I kind of walk, I need to sign the check. So I go to the counter, I put both my hands out on the counter. And then I look up and I go wait in line and I look at every camera in there dumbly. Just like, what, what, <laughs> what, just looking at all of them. Just getting my face, I wanted to be known, I wanted to be seen. And then I got my cash. And I walked out. And um, we drove down the road to um, a restaurant. And they give you one of those menus that has like five or six pages in it. When I first looked at it and just kind of flipped through it, I was overwhelmed by the choices. It was just, just, it was like, what the hell is this? You know, because in prison, you just get what they, you eat what they give you. You have no say in it. I was not prepared for all the choices. And then that would be a motif of, of coming out of prison, actually, 
We are not prepared for all the choices you have. And we just stick to what's familiar. And I try, that's kind of been for 24 years, it's still a thing with me. Like, I try not to care too much about my, like my outfits. Like, I finally have figured out the costume I wear. It's like my khakis or jeans, and then I wear a t-shirt, and then I wear my sweatshirt over. It's like, I wear, I look like a monk now. I just have one outfit. I got three sweat sweaters I wear. They all look the same. They are the same. And I just wear a clean t-shirt under one every day and change everything else, and then that's it. I finally figured out I don't want to have to choose clothes every day. I just want to look the same. I want to be. I don't want to care about a bunch of things. Um, but that's how it is in the beginning because you're harassed by all the choices. So after we had breakfast, I remember we were walking on. Now it was raining, and I didn't have a, uh, an umbrella. We walked on. Goes, oh man, it's it's kind of ugly now. Look, it's raining. And he says, you want to use my umbrella? And I said, no, man, I'm not made out of paper. <laughs> and he started laughing. <laughs> he just uh, he just laughed. He just started laughing. He says, well, I guess I am. And then he opened up his umbrella, <laughs> gets a car. And then we drive to uh, Harvard Square because he, he was going to drive me to the airport later. But we wanted to go to Harvard Square. By the time we get there, it's not, um, not rainy. So we walk around Harvard Square. I, I buy some postcards and... And I was overwhelmed by all the activity. All the people walking down the sidewalks. Because in prison, people walk making sure you're not bumping into anyone. And people walk giving wide berth to people. Like, you don't want to even, like, get close to bumping into somebody. And, and you know, the way people stand and run and walk near each other out here was so outrageous to me. Like, people skateboards walk on the sidewalk coming by me. I almost wanted to, like, tackle one of them. Like, get the fuck away. What the fuck are you doing, man? Just coming at me? And then they would swerve away. It's, it was really kind of intense. Yeah, Sean talked about this in the last episode, that one of the hardest things for people just getting out of prison is just that, the lack of space, that people are always invading your space. Mm -hmm. In prison, you have this, like, wall of space around you, and if somebody invades that, that means they're coming after you. It's like a no-man's land around you. If somebody's in it, they're out of bounds. Right, exactly. That's what you do. That's how you look at it, exactly. So interesting. So there's that. And then I had this experience as uh, my first my first brush with grief because, you know, I'm out there. I'm doing good. I'm happy. I'm I mean, as happy as you can be. I'm carrying grief with me, obviously, and sour, sorrow and, and all sorts of fear and all sorts of things. But I'm really generally like, oh, man, it feels good to be out. So at one point I go to buy something at, in Harvard Square, and there's this guy in there, this young guy, pimply, big old Adam's apple. I think he's probably a college kid, but sweetheart. And then I come up with my little, you know, bullshit postcards and gum and whatever. And then he takes my money. My money falls out of his hand. And then, like, he tries to give me the receipt and it falls on the floor. <laughs> it's just, it was, like, so clumsy. But as he was, as he bent down to pick up the receipt, and he was just so apologetic to me. Apologetic to me. It was like in that moment flashbacks of all the shit that I had done in prison. 
Like it just came flooding that moment. If he knew the things that I had done, and I felt, I felt terrible that I, this innocent young man was in front of me and all the terrible things I had done. And I mean, uh, it was just, yeah, the, you know, just the level of abuse I'd done to other people, the extortions, the stabbings, the shit on guards, the fires in the, the tear. The making of the knives, the the robbing, the terrorizing all the people I did, the treating the people who love me shitty. I was just felt so... I felt like I was going to just rob this kid of innocence in a way, and I wanted to get out of there as fast as I just grabbed my stuff and I ran out, and I, I'm so not ready for fucking good people, man. <laughs> like, I'm going to always feel like fucking terrible shit in front of them. Like, I, I can't let this keep happening. And running out, you know? Yeah, man, it was exhausting to be free. So then you fly back to L.A. that same day. What happens when you land? When I got there, my, we all went to my grandma's house, and I ate, I think, like 13 enchilada, homemade enchilada. <laughs> I pigged out, man. And so we would go home to my brother's. I'm staying at my brother's house. And uh, we, it's late. It's like 11 o'clock at night, but Paul's like, hey, want to go to the pool? Because, you know, it's July 20, 27th, 1996. So we went out there, and my brother and I just, you know, yucked it up for two or three hours, man, just floating in the deep end. I was explaining what I had gone through. I was explaining how I had seen things differently, and I had reframed my relationship with my father and how I, we, I felt like I needed to throw love at that relationship. We needed to be compassionate. I was preaching a whole new gospel, man. It wasn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was like the gospel of reframing, man. I'm going to save my life by not fucking taking shit personally. I'm going to frame my life. By, I'm going to change my life by reframing. I'm going to change my life by loving. Like I was like, I had a whole thing, you know? And this is how I got out, I said. This is how I did not stab anyone very much the last couple of years, you know. Um, this is how I changed my life, man, to get out. And I'm here, and I want to stay out. Joe, you spent, you spent a lot of time in prison thinking about your dad and your relationship with your dad. What was that dynamic like after you got released? What was it like when you first saw him after getting released? I saw him when I when I exited the plane, and there's my dad. Mm-hmm. He's my dad. I'd done all my heart work on him already, so I just hug him. I love him. We cry. We cry. You know, we weep like men. And... um we just we just felt the emotion, man. We just like just felt it. Then that was it. That was it. And then we're back on track. Like let's let's move forward. But there was one conversation that solidified what we would try to be the rest of this time and kind of got to, which was this, Dad. So I fucked up really bad. You fucked up really bad. Why don't we do this? Let my fucked up shit cancel out your fucked up shit, and then your fucked up shit cancel out my fucked up shit, and let's just start over. 
let's just do that. Boom, clean slate. Turn the fucking page. Hmm. Yeah, let's just have a fresh start. And that's what we chose to do. Just like that. No litigating. Well, that you still did. I want to still talk about this one. What about them? No. That's what clean slate means. I had a lot of fucked up shit. You had a lot of fucked up shit. Let's fucking get the shame out of the way. And let's just start new. Optimistic. Beautiful. Yes. And how did your dad respond to that? He was like, yeah, that's, a, that's fine with me kind of thing. Like, <laughs> hug it out. Let's do this. You know, like just for real. It's like that's how you have to handle that shit sometimes. You know, you just have to be clear and make it simple. And it's simple that way. When you look at somebody and say fresh start and you look and they're like, yeah, I really want a fresh start. Then it's the fresh start. You know what fresh start means? I know what fresh start means. It's not fucking play, play games. It's not fuck around. It's just fresh started. Okay, fresh start. We'll be right back. Part two, hard adjustments. So Joe arrives back in L.A., he starts reconnecting with friends, family. And through his connection with Richard Rodriguez, he begins meeting, hanging out, and getting to know other writers. Successful magazine writers, a few TV writers, a lot of poets, like himself. What was Joe like when you first met him? Where was he at? What was he like? The first time I laid eyes on Joe Loya, he walked through my door, my apartment door. This is Aida Salazar. She ran a writer's group with a bunch of poets on the east side of Los Angeles. We were meeting to to discuss or to, to kind of open up a writer's circle. Um, a friend had invited him. Um, so Joe walks in, um, and he was very, very stoic, very quiet. Um, there was an energy about him that was a little bit frightening. Um, we all knew he was a he was a f- former bank robber that he had just gotten out of prison and but that he was coming with his poetry so we sat down and um it was it was really interesting to see him to, to watch him kind of observe us but he knew things about poetry that i certainly didn't um, because he had been studying it so intensely in in prison and he immediately gained our respect because of that all of us were hadn't studied it. He was an autodidact, and um, and he was an impressive autodidact at that. And so, um, but it was it was something that um, we loved, you know, to to have in our group because he was kind of like the master in the in the bunch. What was Joe like as a person? He he was rough. He was really rough around the edges. Very very socially. Um, Distant. I wouldn't say awkward, but distant. The game face was on, right? Like he was, he had to put up a front. And I think, you know, at least around us, you know. um, But we could feel the intensity. We could feel the darkness and, and, and all of that, I think. And we could read it. I mean, he didn't smile a lot, you know. His, his lips were pursed. His face was... It was, it was very tight, you know, clenched jaw sometimes, you know. He didn't blink a lot. 
you know, he, he looked right into you when he wasn't looking down. He looked down a lot. You know, you build up all of these preconceptions, right? Like, oh, he's a bank robber and, and he's done all this stuff. It was more of an energy that he had. He had this energy that was just really wounded, you know, and wounded in a very masculine sense, you know, toxic masculine sense. And that was frightening for 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 a long time hmm. when we weren't um, trying to figure him out. I think we were afraid of him. He would share with me how his prison cell would open. He knew that that's the time that he would go out, time for dinner. Um, he said that sometimes he would wait for something to open, but he realized where he was at, and he was outside in the free world. So I know at times when we would go to dinner, it was difficult um, just being around a lot of people. This is Lisa Perez again. You know, she had really befriended Joe in prison, wrote to him a lot, visited him a lot. Afterwards, they tried to see if maybe... They could be more than friends. And of course, I, you know, I love Disneyland and God bless him. I think within not even a couple months, I, we're, we're going to Disneyland because that's my favorite place. And, and he's there. And later on, I think about it. I'm just like, boy, I, I asked a lot from him for him to go there when he's so used to being in solitude and just trying to get out in that world. Right after prison, Richard Rodriguez got Joe a job writing op-eds for the Pacific News Service, which was this California-based company that tried to get writing in newspapers from the kind of people who weren't normally printed in places like the L.A. Times and the New York Times. Joe did well, writing about being an ex-con, trying to make it on the outside. But at the same time, as you can hear, relationships were harder than expected. First with Richard. By and large, what happened, I guess, with the fact of our correspondence for those three years was the fact that it died as it did. There was something in the anonymity of that relationship, the fact that I did not expect ever to meet him, in our, our being strangers to each other. There are some things you, so personal you can only tell them to a stranger. As I was a stranger to him, we were able to talk about a great many things. Um, when he got out of prison and he insisted that I go visit him at his brother's house in um, Southern California, he put on a three- or four-hour performance in his brother's living room. His brother had gone to work. And um, it was, I don't remember what stories he told me, but they were really finely woven stories. And I realized as I was sitting on the sofa listening to this man is that he was a performer, a theatrical, and that his energies as a writer, were that he could organize a narrative in interesting ways with beginning, middle, and end. And that was no small achievement, I thought. I don't know where he got that, maybe from his biblical literature, but, but there, was a, there, was, there were finely formed narratives. Um, and then I leave him. And then I don't think, I, maybe he comes up to San Francisco and I get him a position at a news service and I don't see him very much anymore. Um, we might have an occasional lunch, and then that becomes even less 
uh, frequent. I remember my partner and I got invited to his anniversary. It was, I think he'd been out of jail for a year or two years or something like that. It was in, in Oakland, and it, there must have been hundreds of people there. People, I don't know, where, uh, beauties, these, these women, these beauties, who just, uh, who, <laughs> who had found him or he'd found them or whatever, whatever that was. These guys that I knew who wanted to be writers, some of them famous, some of them never going to be famous writers. This, this room full of hundreds of people. And, and Jim, my partner, and I came into, the, into one of the rooms. And I, I saw Joe at the far end of, of, the, of this crowd. I don't even think he saw me. I might have waved. I might not have. And I said to Jim, I, I don't think we need to be here. <laughs> He's never going to see us. He never, it doesn't matter whether we hear another acolyte at his little altar. And so we left. He left probably a year after he got out of prison, and um, him and I had a falling out after that. Basically, we were trying to um, give our relationship a try, and it just didn't work. I figured for the six years that we had invested, we had to at least give it a try. And um, it just didn't work. We'll be right back. Part three. Gone in a moment. Joe, it sounds like it was hard getting out. Was there ever a point where you thought, maybe it's too hard? Maybe I'm not going to make it? Yeah. There was one intense moment where I was on the fence. I was definitely on the fence. You know, I was hanging out with Lisa Perez, and she took me to a restaurant on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena, Crocodile Cafe. You know, I'd worked at one before, and here we are at this one. And we're on the patio on uh, Colorado, and, um, and there's this homeless guy across the street starts walking in traffic, and there's all this horn, honk, honk. That's why we're paying attention because everyone's trying to stop. They're honking at him, and he gets so agitated that he stands right in the middle of the road and he puts his arms out like he's Jesus on the cross, and he throws his head back, and he's just standing in the middle, the the center line, and so the traffic picks up again. It starts going slowly, slowly by him. And he's just draw, dr- you know, dramatic there, and people are saying stuff about him in the patio, and I feel bad for him. I have solidarity. On him. I get it, dude. In those days, like I'm feeling a lot of compassion. I changed who I was. I was did this weird thing where I would, uh, if I saw somebody on the street now, I just give them money. Like I gave them money. That was my thing. I was trying to live and by leading with compassion. 
So this is it. That's who I am. So I'm on this on this patio with her, and then he comes and he crosses the street and he comes to the gate that separates the patio from the sidewalk. And then he opens the his little gate there and walks in and sits at the table far at the far edge of the patio by himself. He doesn't he doesn't get seated. He's super grungy looking. I mean, he looks like just dirty, no shoelaces, flaps open on his shoes. He's just like, you know, just completely tore up, matted hair and everything. And so now it looks like he wants to be served. And now I can hear the waiters and waitresses like, oh, man, do we have to serve him? Oh, he's probably going to stink and this and that. And I look at Lisa and I'm like, man, this is terrible the way they're talking about this guy. I have total solidarity Mm. still with him. And then I look over at him, like, kind of want to give him an eye, like, hey, man, I see you, homeboy. Like, like that kind of thing, solidarity, sometimes it works. You can, there's, I've been out and I've been in places and somebody sees me, I see them, and we're like, yeah, we know who we are. Yeah, yeah, nod, yeah, all right, what's up, all right? And that's it. You let, you let people know who you are. And I'm trying to give that guy that, and he looks at me, and right from across the patio, he says, what are you looking at, you bean-eating burrito motherfucker, or something like bean, yeah, bean-burrito-eating motherfucker. Like, just straight up says it to me, calls me on in front of everybody. Straight up racist shit. Hmm. And everyone looks at me. They turn around and look at me. They have that look that we call in prison, like, hey, man, I don't play much chess, but it looks like it's your move kind of thing, right? Like, just what the fuck are you going to do? And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? And I had solidarity with that dude, and my anger flashed. From zero to 100, because in that moment, I felt he's threatening me. And I don't know that my hand goes to my fork, but I look at my fork and I'm like, can this thing work? I think I can make this fork work. If I need to, I could stab him in the eye. I could stab him. I could stab him in front of his throat. I'll shove this shit up his nose if I have to. Like, I'm thinking, what can I do to hurt him? For this slight. And then I'm like, wait a minute. And now I have to do my Buddhist reframing thing. And I'm like, okay, calm down, Joe. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck, man? No, that guy is just throwing words at you, man. That's words. That's nothing. It's not about you at all. Dial that shit down, down. He's not threatening you. He's not threatening you. It's not a threat. So I start dialing it down. I'm at 80. I'm at 60. That's not a threat. It's not a threat. And then my mind thought, but what if he walks over here? What if he w- starts walking over here and it's an implied threat? And then I'm like, oh, okay, back to the fork. I'll put this work in. I'll stand up here. I'll move Lisa over there. Like, I'm starting to imagine how I'm going to have to, you know, lunge at this guy. And now I'm back at 100 again. And then I thought, but what if he comes over here and he puts his hand on you? And then I was like, oh, fuck. And so now I am in such distress. Like, I can't let go. And all I can think is, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to go in this dread by just stabbing him and saying, what the fuck, man? I don't have to worry about it anymore. I'll just take care of it right now, just like if I was in prison. And there really was a prisoner ethos that I could not let go of. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what was Lisa's experience of you in this moment? Like, did she even know what was going on or was it all interior? No, you? it was all interior. She had to have known because he cussed me out so, you know, racistly and violently. And then I just went quiet. Right. She had to have known that something was going on. I don't think she understood that this was my moment of fatal peril. That's what I don't think she understood. 
what was going on in me was like, I don't, I can't get a grip on it just being right here. This is way more than I'm used to experiencing. And this feels almost, I don't want to let it go. Like it feels good to, I've been living out here for several months now and I've been in dealing with humiliation after humiliation after small humiliation and being helpless and fucking swallowing shit and just like not doing it. And the idea of going over this man has crossed such a, a line that the idea of going over there and, and, and really putting damage on this guy's body feels so good. It's so seductive. That was my danger. That was the danger. Like, I understood that this felt too good. I needed to get out of there. Joe, that's a, that's a particular phrase you used, your moment of fatal peril. What is that? Well, you know, for those of us who are under a three-strikes-you're-out law, is when I, like when I got out, there's a mistake you can make that meant that you're never getting out of prison again. It'll wash you up. One mistake. And that one mistake, many men who came out of prison when they would be in reentry programs, they would deal with, they would talk about that moment in which they they had to choose, am I going to walk away or am I going to wash myself up and never get out of prison? It's right here. Its decision is right now. It's like I am, my life is imperiled in this moment, and not just in peril, like, oh, I might go to prison for a couple of years, like, I'll never get out again. And so they refer to that moment of crisis where you have to choose, do I walk away or do I wash myself up? And they call that the moment of fatal peril. So what do you do? How do you get out of there? I'm trying to figure out how do I let go of this, and I realize, well, sometimes... It, unlike prison where I could not leave prison, I had to stay there and I had to deal with it. I was like, I have an out. I got a car. I got a van. And so I tell Lisa, I said, I to get money out. I put it on the thing. I said, here, man, pay. I got to leave. I'll, I'll meet you out and let me go get the car. She gets in the car and I'm quiet all the way to her house. And I go and I drop her off at her house. And like, I got to go handle this. And she's like, yeah, I understand. But here's the thing, on the way home, I realized I needed to get a hold of my father and I needed to get a hold of my brother. And I don't know why. Like, to this day, I don't know why. But I was smart enough to say, Paul... You know, get a sleeping bag or something. I, mean, I need you to come and spend the night with me. Dad, I'm going to pick you up. I need you to come and spend the night with me. Like, I need you guys to stay with me tonight. It was, it was, it was like in a, when I was a kid, there was this movie called um, The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr., and Lon Chaney Jr. did not want to become the Wolfman. And so Lon Chaney Jr. would have people, like, chain him up and, and, and chain him to a chair when the full moon was going to come, and he would say, get away from me, get away from me, get away from me. And, and I had two voices in my head fighting. 
One was like, you're a punk. You're a weak-ass piece of shit. To let a homeless dude do that to you? Oh, man, you're not a man. You're a fucking coward. And there's another voice, you're not a coward, Joe. That's an old way of looking at strength and weakness. The way we look at strength now is integrity and keeping, you know, loving the people here that you're responsible for and and being um, decent and kind. There's a strength to that, and that's the strength. The other one, it was lazy. Getting angry is the laziest thing you can do. There's no strength in that. You know that. That's, that's actually um, fear itself. You're giving into fear, and like I just like had this conversation. No, fuck all that fucking bullshit, lightweight, soft ass shit in your head. That's weak. Like it just it was really intense. And it was it was maddening. It was madness. My dad and brother came. I told Paul, stand by, sleep by the window. Dad, sleep by the door. Do not let me get up and out of here. I was like Lon Chaney Jr., like, I don't want this to happen. I don't want to become that. And then I lay in bed thinking, I have all night to make sure that I do some work on myself so that in the morning I don't get up and go find a gun so I can go rob a bank or hurt somebody some way. Is that what you were worried about? That yeah. You'd go rob no, that was what was on my mind. Like, whenever that beast was talking, like, don't wait, wait till morning, man. We'll go handle this, man. We'll, we'll fucking, we know where there's guns. Let's go get a gun. And then we'll go handle this. We'll go. We'll go find a place to find a victim for this. Mm. So then what? It's kind of um, simple. What happened? I just lay in bed, and my brother and dad heard heard me just cry. The voices were so strong, and I was not convinced that the beast was not going to win. I was not convinced. I just lay there and let them fight in me, argue, make their points, and hope that time would, that process itself would work itself out and I would fall, I'd fall on the, you know, on the positive side. And um, it was terrible. I cried myself to sleep. Like, I was just so exhausted from the rage that was coursing through me. Because that's what it was. It was now dancing with that old rage again that wanted, that had done so much damage on the uh, uh, on the planet. I was, that's what came up. I was dancing with that rage, man. And then the morning came. Morning always comes. And the morning comes, like, there's my dad seated on, reading a book, seated on his, you know, by the door, and Paul was brushing his teeth inside the, in the bathroom there. And I don't remember, like, much talking about anything. It was just very quiet. The sun was coming through the shades. And I do remember that we got up and we just hugged it out, the three of us. You know, not unlike that when we hugged it out after my mom died and my dad gave us gum and we we hugged it out crying. I had leaned on my my peoples, man. They loved me. They wanted me to succeed. They wanted me to stay out. 
I wanted to stay out. And um, the fever, you know, it faded. You know, it was gone. I didn't feel that rage <clears throat> anymore. In fact, I felt we got a strategy. And the strategy is very simple. <laughs> you got to lean on the love, man. My dad loved me. My brother loved me. I love them. We're family. And we had had such a blasted out home at one point. But in that moment, hugging them, man, we had the best home we'd ever had. It was reliable. And it was us showing up and helping the other, other person out in a moment of crisis. And then I was like, I might make this. <laughs> you know. did the rage ever come back like that? Not like that. The rage does come back periodically. I can take things personally. And uh, it comes up. And when it does, it doesn't have that like, oh shit, people are going to pay. It has that, it has, um, you know, a little bite but that rage doesn't stay. That rage doesn't carry me into the night with peril. I don't feel fatal peril. Like that. This is episode 14 of The Bank Robber Diaries, Fatal Peril. It's season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leone. Production assistance from Annette Run Hell. Mixing is by Johnny Vince Evans and Eric Romani. Subscribe and listen to The Score, Bank Robber Diaries, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast app, or wherever you find your podcasts. Next up, episode 15, Last Words. Stay tuned. <laughs>